0: If you enjoy this podcast, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and visit our website at lifebetweenthevines.com.
1: When I was here in the late 60s, my dad ran Inglenook. I worked at Inglenook as a kid. Uh, I was 19 years old, I think. You know there was Charles Krug, Louis Martini, Inglenook, Beaulieu, Beringer. Joseph Phelps was, uh, had just started, Heights, uh, Stony Hill had been started in the, in the mid-50s or late 50s, and that was it.
0: Discovering and tasting wine shouldn't be a homework assignment. And we believe that the people who are closest to wine have the best stories. So open a bottle. And welcome to podcast number 533. This week we feature Carrie Gott of Vineyard and Winery Estates, Napa Valley. Gott is a household name to wine lovers and consumers who visit Napa Valley. Within the wine industry, Kerry God is a household name to vintners around the world. Kerry has helped start and design wineries of all types and in this specific story, we'll be talking about Calla Estate and winery in Pope Valley. Even more interesting is Kerry's history in Napa Valley. Kerry has worked with the very best. Indeed, he has been there and he has done that. Listen to Kerry on our Vino Lingo segment defining the phrase, Pinot Noir is my love. I'm back in St. Helena, and I am here with Carrie Gott again. And it's good to see you, Carrie. Good to see you. Welcome back to St. Helena. Thank you very much. We're going to be talking about something a little different this time versus last time. But our listeners may remember Carrie from a few years ago. Again, we were just talking pre-COVID when we last. And it
1: talked. was 2018, 2019. Yeah, wow. We were unmasked and and happy and not realizing what was around the corner. So, but you know, we all survived and and. Uh, you know fully
0: vaccinated and all good it's uh, funny though how it has affected uh tasting rooms in general in the wine industry in particular you know, the advent of zoom tastings which to my knowledge nobody did anything like that
1: yeah it was interesting one of my clients brie over in uh, windsor started off very early with the zoom tastings and cooking and because of a big commercial kitchen and stuff and I was doing these great Zoom meetings in my wine cellar. And then I took my computer and walked out in the vineyard, turned the computer around so you could see, and I was talking about grapes and variety. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I had the backdrop of all these wines that I've made or other collection of wines behind me. And in the kitchen, people were cooking and, you know, everybody was trying to either stir the pot at the same time. and. It was really interesting to watch how that went from something we never even heard of the word Zoom, ah, right. and then all of a sudden we were Zooming, and now when you
0: I don't even have a subscription to Zoom anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that, in your case, then you wouldn't be doing anything like that, but I imagine a lot of wineries are going to still take advantage of it, don't you think?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, we still use Zoom, but not like the way we did when we were, you know, Hiding from the rest of the world. Right. And all those early days in March uh, that we were walking in vineyards up and down the streets here in Napa Valley with my dogs and my wife, masked up, hiding from people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was a very different world. And it took a little while for us to come out of that particular cocoon. So it's good to be in person again. Right. Certainly one of the interesting things about it
1: when in the wineries. We didn't really mask up when we were making wine. There was the thought that we should be masked up or making wine. And it wasn't as rigid in the wineries where we're actually, you know, the guys were pulling hoses or we were blending or tasting. Obviously, can't do that with a mask on. So we sort of had the outside world, and then we had the inside world. And then to get out in the vineyards, nobody was wearing a mask. Well, we got through it. Right. And it certainly helped the world of DTC. Yeah direct sales to customers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a real learning experience. It was really the classic eye-opener of,
0: whoa, we can sell a lot of wine this way. Yeah, especially for the small winery. Uh yeah. Well, primarily, we're here to talk about Calla Estate and Winery, and that's in Pope Valley. Correct. Which that unto itself has me intrigued.
1: Well, Pope Valley appellation is Napa Valley. uh, Does not have its own appellation of Pope Valley. Uh, it's always just remained, for the locals and the people that are there, uh, to call it Pope Valley. There's a, one post office, there's no gas station, there's no. There's one little store, but lots of vineyard. And so Calla Lily was to, developed in around 2010, built the winery building. Before that, the, the previous owner of the property had planted 20 acres of grapes, so it's all the classic Bordeaux varietals you need for making great varieties. It's a hillside vineyard. Um, we back right up to Howell Mountain. In fact, just above the top of our property on one big hill slope is the, the border into Howell Mountain, but it's not Howe Mountain. And we've got Cabernet, Merlot, Cab Franc, Malbec, Petit Verdot, and then the spice that's some of the best of the, that the Cabernets that we make is to have a little bit of Petit Syrah. Nice. And I sell the Petit Syrah to another winery, keep a little bit for ourselves, but it's another one of the spices we occasionally use. We also have something very unique. We have this small block of of Cabernet, old clone um, Cabernet, likely the Martini clone, although I'm not positive. So the small block of AXR that we have at Calla makes stunning wine, but it's in an old style of Napa Valley Cabernet. I've made Cabernet and been around Cabernet Vineyards and the production since 1969 here in Napa Valley. And of course, at that point, it would be AXR rootstock, maybe some St. George rootstock, no anywhere near the number of clones that we have of Cabernet now. So there was a little bit more herbaceousness. The university, I went to Davis, university told us that when grapes were 23.5, maybe 24, they were totally ripe and ripe to pick. That's really not the case. I mean, we picked from 25 to 26.5 bricks now, much riper grapes, um, which gets rid of the little bit of herbaceousness that when you pick at 23.5, you can make a little bit of herbaceous-style Cabernet, which is wonderful. Um, so these old... Uh, clones of Cabernet were great to work on. So we have this small block and then our other blocks of of Cabernet, uh, three other blocks, four other blocks of Cabernet are excellent modern clones and rootstock. Uh, The Merlot makes very soft, flowery Merlot. The the Cab Franc does what Cab Franc you want it to do. It's one of the last things when you put a blend together, it's one of the last wines that you consider part of the blend. Uh, Another winemaker reminded me in his words um, was that Cap Franc stitches blends together to and it and it does so well so we have all these varieties and we make a very two very exciting wines the Audex which is our premier uh, over-the-top Cabernet a big beautiful bottle um, silkscreened heavy packaging very beautiful bottle, and then our ultimate Cabernet, which is one notch off the top, they both score very well. They're both really show the style of Pope Valley, but really more so Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon.
0: I want to go back to Pope Valley for a couple of minutes, and, and I guess the obvious question is, do you think Pope Valley will become an AVA, or is it just something that it's kind of nice in the pocket, it's happy as it is right now?
1: Well, I think that, you know, I'm not part of the politics of, of Napa Valley, or of Pope Valley. I guess I could be, but I'm not in that mode. There have been people that have vineyards there that want to have pope valley as an appellation so they've gone through the work and stuff and then there's other people that are not interested so unless you sort of have everybody in the area really champing on on getting pope valley as an appellation if i was a betting man pope valley will become an appellation because there's a lot of vineyard there and land is not as expensive in pope valley so if you bought land in Rutherford or Oakville, you're gonna spend up to a half a million dollars an acre, and, and what is it? Is it really, is it a home site, or is it a vineyard site, or is it both? So these pricing of what, just an acre, or 10 acres of, of, in these great Appalachians, such as Oakville or, or Rutherford, are out of control. In Pope Valley, you would easily be able to find uh, vineyard land that has been untouched, you know, it's rolling land, um, had cattle on it, for $400,000 an acre. 20 years ago, $50,000 an acre. 25 years ago, $25,000 an acre. Yeah. And then spend anywhere from $50 to $100,000 an acre to develop the land, whatever it takes. And you know, you have to go through a permitting process and engineering and
0: there was still some cattle there more recently, wasn't Oh, no, it? no, no. There's, 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 still, there's still cattle. cattle. Oh, yeah, there's still of lots of cattle.
1: Yeah, I've seen some. It's, I would say if you took a look at all of Pope Valley that would sure. be plantable, say, 20 degrees or smaller slope, you can plant up to 30 degrees, but that's pretty steep. There probably is, of all the land out there that's under 20% uh, percent slope, that probably only 50% of it's planted, hmm. old, guys and gals and family that
0: have it. For our listeners, uh, just to talk about the actual way to see it is uh, going up the Howell Mountain, coming down the other side. And yeah. when you get there, it's idyllic. Oh. it's you, you, you relax immediately because it's just so beautiful and serene and there's not 10,000 people there. Yeah.
1: And if you were really good at throwing something, you
0: could throw a rock into downtown St. Helena. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is what's crazy about it because yeah. it's just over the mountain. Pope is totally different. And climate-wise, there is one difference
1: is though the coastal fog that you get typically starts August first and goes all the way till the end of September. And I mean there's other times that the coastal fog comes in because the ocean is, you know, twenty miles that way. It gets into Sonoma County, it comes over the hills. Uh, on the west side of Napa Valley and normally doesn't go over the hills that is uh, Howell Mountain. And just one in 10 days is to get over the mountains and get into Pope Valley. Or it's the one really climate difference.
0: Hmm. Okay. Still grows damn good grapes. I, well, and, and that's the one thing I don't think I have said, is the wines I have tried from there were just like, man, I want to drink more of these. Just somewhat south of Pope Valley is the Child's Valley, but they're not really closely connected, are they? Oh, no, they're, they're totally connected.
1: Oh, you know, yeah. if you get in the Pope Valley whole stream going down, Pope Valley at the top to the north, um, banks up against the mountains that actually lead you to Middletown, and then you go down the valley, and why they, why it changed to Child's Valley. The valley gets a little constricted and then opens up again. But you could, you know, bowling ball down the, the road. And Child's Valley is there. Not as many grapes planted there. Not as much plantable land. And a little bit more history there that goes back to the Nicolini family, one of the oldest wineries here in, in uh, Napa County, because uh, their old winery buried in the hills, amazing. It didn't burn down in, in the 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 Napa fire and um but they had vineyards there
0: and then you know then it stops and that area too it just seems to be more and I'm talking Charles Valley seems to be more foliage more trees and that kind of thing versus much more rugged right
1: Right. yeah The, the plains where you can plant grapes are few and far between right and mostly planted out oh really I did that I didn't know well, you know, not that it all is. I mean, you right. can do some, some amazing effort and knock down a whole bunch of trees or level some land and stuff, but, you know, it would be easier to go into Pope Valley and, and buy a big slug, 150, 450 acres of land and plant pigs. So when I was involved with a corporate winery here in Napa Valley, a lot of our Sauvignon Blanc, big brand of Sauvignon Blanc came from Pope Valley, hmm. where the variety
0: does stunning. It's it's just such a wonderful area. I mean, this place I'd recommend people to go see. Uh, finding the tasting rooms might be a little bit more of a challenge, but it's well worth it. Yeah, there's a few wineries out there that have tasting rooms. It's, it's a few and far between.
1: Right. There's not a lot of wineries in Pope Valley. Yeah, but that's what makes it that much more fun, I think. But it's all going to change. You think I so? I mean, it will. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been around this valley for decades. I guess you would know. And it, you know... When I was here in the late '60s, my dad ran Inglenook. I worked at Inglenook as a kid. Uh, I was 19 years old, I think. And you know there was Charles Krug, Louis Martini, Inglenook, Beaulieu, Beringer, Joseph Phelps was uh, had just started um, Heights. Joe Heights had been around for maybe five, six, seven years. Uh, Stony Hill had been started in the, mm-hmm. in the mid-50s or late 50s, and that was it. That's crazy. There weren't very many other wineries. I didn't try to give you a complete list, but there weren't very many wineries. What is there now, Four, 500? Mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's a brand or an actual physical right. facility, and I've just watched over the years from part of the time being here and part of the time Far when I was up in Amador County, uh, and then down in in the southern part of the state, it's you know it's grown. It's 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 fun watching people come into the wine business. Of course, that's part of what my business is, is help people get into the wine business. Hold my hands, and I'll pull you into the wine business. Some people really get it, and some don't.
0: You've opened up. A whole different bunch of subjects, and that's one I find very interesting, people wanting to get into business and realizing the commitment it takes, the involvement, let alone the cash. That's got to be a bit of a challenge for you, for someone who's been here for so long, to deal with this.
1: No, I mean, there's... I'm, I probably I could come up with five different categories the kind of people that get into the business. I used to teach um, getting into the wine business and the extension course at Davis, you know, uh, one or two day thing. And, you know, it wasn't just me, but there was people that were um, helping people get into the business or people that were in the business and they, you know, however, the the list of what people talked about was, was put together. But my slideshow and talk was basically some of the financial considerations, some of the operational considerations that you needed to do, some of the romantic considerations, and all the stuff you needed to do um, to get into the business. And you'd see people sitting in the audience that didn't come from the business, and they would go like, you know, okay, dude, yeah, yeah, okay, I got, you know, fine, yeah, yeah, okay, you've done it. Or other people just just dying on every word that I say because they wanted to ride the same white horse that I rode in the vineyard and taking wine with the thief out of a barrel and, and tasting and great dinners and you know living the life of, of a wine person driving the tractor in the vineyard I mean I did it all and have done it all and it's I don't say that out of glory I mean that's you know what the wine business is. And people would just want to do exactly what I've done or did at, at the particular time um so you go through all of this, and then I would stop the whole thing, and I, I, when I would do my summers up at Lake Tahoe, I would go to the local Lucky and take my phone or camera at the time, and i just point it at the wine shelves in the store, and walk down the aisle, and then turn around and come back, and, you know, just nothing but bottles of wine. And I said, you know, one of the things, the challenge that you've got is, if you want to start a new brand, where's your wine going to go on the shelf i mean are you going to shove it aside and your wine goes right there and then i'd stop that and i say but the thing you got to take away from all of this that you learned today is romance aside driving the tractors drinking wine out of the barrels is you got to get rid of the stuff yeah and see people kind of like what (laughs) i said you got to sell it and if you don't know how to sell Um, you're going to find it very difficult to get into the wine business. And selling wine is a lot of different things. You know, it's your tasting room, it's your staff, it's you on the road doing a dinner in New York and then another dinner in Houston and then a dinner in, in Boston or talking to the Friday afternoon distributors meeting with guys of the distributors force that are just nodding off, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you would, we'd be presented, now we have this great winemaker from so-and-so winery, me, and, and you get to talking, and it, move you off the stage, and then the same manager would come back up, talk to his sales force and say, now we have the next great winemaker. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of trying to sell wine. And, you know, you pe- meet people in stores, you do wine tastings. I mean, it's really kind of fun because it's it's a business that, that people find romance in and it also lubricates the jaw.
0: It does that, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah it's fun. And
1: I haven't had any wine.
0: Uh, <laughs> I want to go back to your, to Eagleduck. What year were you at Eagleduck? On uh, 69,
1: 70, and 71. And then in 71, I moved to, I started working for Peter Newton at Sterling. Sterling was... Two vintages old, might be three vintages, two vintages old. Rick Foreman was the winemaker, and Mike Collini and I were the two cellar guys. Mike Collini was Stony Hill Vineyards, um, still lives here in the valley, and one of his daughters is married to one of my sons. Oh, really? Yeah, so it goes, you know, it's the way back machine. Yeah. So I was at at Sterling for a couple years, and then we bought a huge piece of property up in, in Amador County, um, 450 acres of land, wow. homes, tractors, pumps, wells, uh, 160 acres of vines, for $225,000. Oh, wow. You <laughs> couldn't do that. Oh, that's just incredible. And then two years later, we started Motavinia in the basement of my house.
0: <laughs> You've just had like this incredible current. Where is your book?
1: Yeah. Oh no, I, you know in, My book's in my head. Yeah, you know. but still. it's great. I think it's more fun to help people get into the business and turn them onto it. You know, I get to train a lot of young people, and some older people, you can or cannot train them. Um, it's more fun to, to turn people onto the business. I mean, you just take like the newest one I'm doing over in Sonoma County. the guy knows how to sell but don't know anything about wine his wife comes from a wine family the rossi family up in asti but that doesn't mean they know anything about wine and they're just having a great time i mean we just finished a big harvest for them and i bet you we didn't make enough wine and we have 60 acres of vineyard oh wow. that's that's a lot that's a lot yeah yeah and you know we're getting ready to build a big winery there and we've already got a beautiful design for the winery building and you know you can just see it coming and i've got a uh, i've trained a a guy that's in his early 30s doesn't, is a, sort of a family member, but not genetically so, and I've taught him everything he knows about wine. And now I just, you know, do it, you know. He, he, he gets it, you know. And occasionally he knows where the boundary that, is this right?
0: I said, yeah, that's good. You know, you got it. But you've got to get such a guess out of when they're successful, when they're able to grow the way you'd like to see. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's a payoff. Yeah. So
1: it's it's fun to be able to build and create the wineries and they go from a couple Indian tribes to uh, in Arizona and down in Santa Barbara and all through Monterey County and Napa and Sonoma and where else in Amador County and
0: so it's all over. Yeah, we were just talking at the beginning of the interview about Erdos Winery in, uh, in Wilcox, Wilcox, Arizona. Wilcox, Arizona. And uh, you helped them get started, which was, uh, we had just interviewed them for the podcast. We've gotten away a little bit from Calla Lily, which I, I, I want to spend a little more time talking about that. First of all, how many cases are you making, just so we have an idea? About 3,000 cases a year. Nice and small. And is it? Very small. Just and, I, and I sell some of the grapes out, of, or we sell some of the grapes out of the vineyard. And is it just these two wines that you're producing then? That's it. Okay, and, and these are ultra-premium wines. They are really... They're stunning. Yeah.
1: They score very well, but, you know, it scores. You know, I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that we have this alternative way of looking at wine because people drink labels. They don't necessarily, unless they're very good at tasting, drink the wine, and so what... When somebody, or you look at a shelf, and you see a label you don't know, how are you going to judge that? You know, the label's pretty, or there's a shelf talker that says it's ninety-four. Well, who says it's ninety-four? Maybe it's ninety-six. Maybe it's twenty-two. You know, but it's it's a way to communicate quality to people. Or, God, I just had the Calla Lily Ultimate Red, two thousand sixteen. It's stunning. You've already planted a seed in somebody's mind, and that is, I mean, you're taking it from somebody that's a winemaker, but. That is part of what this whole wine business is because people, not that they don't want to know wine, a lot of people don't know wine. So if somebody says, God, this is a really good Cabernet. It goes on the table and you, know, and you, you, you go like, well, oh, you're right. This is really good. And it didn't have to come from me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and in my own tasting group, that's what I see happen all the time, which is really fun. And it's always funny how certain wines seem to top off. And that's the best thing about tasting blind because you can't really cheat unless no. you're the guy who put them in the bags.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it it is a, from that point of view, watching people enjoy your wine and the food. And all, you know, when I was a kid and up to probably when I was in the my fifties, we did a huge amount of cooking. And there was the serving the wine and it was roasting the pig or whatever we're doing. And you had an added dimension of um, the cooking with the food and standing around the, my kitchen table or in a restaurant or, yeah. You know. So it's so multidimensional, you know, plus the families in the restaurant business, we used to have a delicatessen. So we had the wine, the food, the beer, you
0: know, all that kind of stuff. And That's nice. It's great. It's gotta be great memories for you. About how many wineries have you been involved with opening? Do you know? Do you have an idea? 30? Hmm.
1: It's probably actually more than that. There's some that you get down to a particular point where they, you know, you have you're right at the on-off switch. And here's what you need to do, and here's an approximate amount of money that you're gonna spend, and then that, that number isn't real. You're going to spend more money than that, but I don't know what you're going to do. But, you know, here, here you are. And some people start, some people make custom crushed wine, do a few vintages, and then they bail out. Other people start, and then they just don't stop and just keep going. And
0: Well, that's when wine gets its hooks really in you.
1: Oh, yeah. And then other people that start in the vineyard, I mean, I, I, you know, the tour. The brand tours sure. just moved in right above us up here, and I met uh, his general manager today, um, first time, because they just moved in recently. Had a great conversation in the parking lot, and he comes from a grape family, and he has a brand. He said it's really small, you know, but he's comes from the vineyard end of it, and he's working for an important wine brand.
0: And he's creating his own little wine brand.
1: It's only like 100 cases, sure. but, you know, I've got it. You've got to start
0: somewhere. Yeah. yeah. This idea of, of working with these wineries, and, and again, we're kind of getting away from Cala here for a moment, but when you plan these, do you have a criteria that's so very specific that it's an all-or-nothing plan in your head for your clients?
1: Oh, no, no, because what I don't want to do is say you have to do this. So, you know, tell me what you want. You know, I mean, I want to make the finest Cabernet Sauvignon in the world, or I just love Pinot Noir. I would love to make Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir. Help me make great Pinot Noir. Um, I want to do a multi-dimensional winery. I want to turn it into a business. It's got to be a business. If it's not a business, I don't want to do it. So I understand it's complex, but what are the steps I need to do to actually turn this thing that we're going to do together into a business? Mm-hmm. So they're they're all different, you know. But you you have to get out of them early on what uh, the potential client wants out of the business. And, and is it just the, the bottle of wine that you can point at the bottle of wine? This is me. Yeah. Or is it a family uh, business? You know, XYZ family winery? I don't particularly like the term, but there's nothing wrong with it. I Use your name or use a, a unique name. Family, I don't think, tells me very much because hmm. some of those people are going to die. Yeah. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. But um, to help them get to the goal that they think that the, where they want to be. And they're all different. What I really love, since I uh, studied architecture at, at USC, I'm not an architect, but I studied architecture and have built all kinds of wineries and production facilities and homes and stuff. Um, but the real love is putting together a new winery. Mm. A bet. yeah, and we're just getting ready to do a new one over in Sonoma. Seen the plans with an architect I really enjoy working with, and you know it's kind of we've got something you know, that wall needs to go over here, and you know there's not enough tanks, and but uh, working with an architect that knows wine production is great. Working with an architect which I've had many that don't know that's a disaster, you know. Then you kind of like who's who's in control, and I understand architecture. I mean. I get it. So, you know, but it's fun. By the time you get it built, only one winery that I've done over the years was actually ready before harvest. That's Davis Estates here. Oh, really? In Calistoga. I remember, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And we were ready six months ahead of time. That never happens.
0: I'm not surprised. Well, just the process of doing it permitting and everything else, it just seems to take well, forever. You well, know, just to screw all the bolts together yeah. at the end, it's, yeah. it's a lot. That's yeah, a crazy process. That's, it's got to be a little bit frustrating, though, too, when you're involved with this process, that nothing is going to happen even moderately close to fast. No, but that's okay. I mean, it's, you know, it's life. I guess you've learned to accept it after all this time.
1: Yeah, you know, it's if you have big plans that it's the winery's going to be ready in 2014, and here comes 2014, and you're just barely out of the ground. Yeah, right. Well, then where's the untruths come from? But get over it. Yeah. You make wine at that Custom Crush Winery in an additional year.
0: Yeah, right. You just hang on till you have to. Yeah. Um, let's go back to Calla Lily for a moment. Where did the name come from?
1: So Calla Lily is is owned by a couple uh, guys in Hong Kong. They're both financial guys. And one of the owners, sort of a hedge fund guy, he's really into Bordeaux varietals. The other guy is into Burgundian varietals, uh, trained in in or went to college in in England. Um, and the uh, the guy who's in, um, in in the Bordeaux varietals, his wife translates name translates as calla lily. Oh nice.
0: So it's a name. it's oh, very cool. Yeah. Okay, like what about Audex?
1: Audex is the name that they came up with. Um, meaning it's a derivation of the word audacious, (laughs) and it is a tribute to the people in the 1880s and 1890s that were audacious enough to come and start wineries and vineyards here in Napa Valley.
0: So it's a tribute. That's a very nice tribute. I like that. That's very good. So you're not a partner, actually, financially? No, no, no. no.
1: I'm winemaker general manager. One of the guys in Hong Kong—and, of course, they've been trapped in Hong Kong for three years now because of COVID— is actually general manager. But for the sake of running the place, I I run the place. And my assistant winemakers, Kelly DeAnne, have a great vineyard manager that that I've known since I moved back to the valley in the 90s, early 90s, Alejandro Maldonado. And then I have a great uh, cellar master, uh, Emilio Torres, the wool. And um, so we got a happy little team. Yeah, so Kelly Diani is married to Sal Diani, who is the winemaker at Truchard. Oh, really? So with Kelly, you get two winemakers. That's
0: nice. Pillow talk. Yeah. Yes, exactly. There's a lot of that out here. Yeah. I love to see the look on your face. You are not just passionate, but you have fun in what you do. And. Uh, you know, it's kinda, you just gotta be thrilled every day you come into work. Well, I'll give you a good one. So, when I first started making wine,
1: um, here in Napa Valley as a late teenager, and my dad was running Inglenook and it was a very old-style winery at the time, and they made Pinot Chardonnay, and a little bit of, of Pinot Noir, and Cabernet, and then Barrel Select Cabernet, and you know, there are various wines, but it's all on the old-style, old, old tanks, very few 60-gallon barrels, almost an, an, an anomaly. Um, so I started with that, and then we moved up to Amador County. I was on the mode to to do a, a very modern winery at the time, so it was all American oak barrels, uh, very few French oak barrels. I planted a lot of different varieties in the vineyard, Nebbiolo, Zinfandel, and a lot of the vines are really old. 80 acres are really old Zinfandel, um, but... Chardonnay, um, Merlot, Cab Franc, Ruby Cabernet, and Barbera. And Barbera, for Amador County, it was an absolute match of climate and soil. I mean, it really is the variety, for I think, for, for Amador County. But it can, you know, Shenandoah Valley can grow a lot of different stuff. So early on, my passion was Zinfandel made great um, uh, Barbera. Sauvignon Blanc was very good, and so I went through all those varieties, and then when I left Motavinia, family battle, um, uh, and, and left, went down to Southern California in Arroyo Grande in San Luis Obispo and started Corbett Canyon Vineyards, little bit of Pinot Noir, a lot of Chardonnay, and. Riesling, and sort of a a lot of different wines, a little bit of Cabernet, and so my focus on varieties changed. It's where the first place that I made Pinot Noir. So my passion started with Zinfandel, White Zinfandel, Barbera, Montevigne, then down to the Edna Valley, where we started making other varieties, a little bit cooler climate varieties, then to the Monterey Vineyard, which was much more focused on Whites and Findel, and a few red varieties, Cabernet, but on a big commercial basis, a part of the Seagram world. Then came back to Napa Valley and uh, as president of Sterling and Mum, and made all of those wines a lot of Cabernet and Merlot and Sauvignon Blanc. And my focus continued to change. And then when I left Seagram, then My focus of the wine and what I was interested in changed again. So I went from Zinfandel and all these miscellaneous varieties, could make them all, and then when I got sort of free of the corporate world and stuff and not making sparkling wine anymore, um, then it went to more miscellaneous varieties. I love making Sauvignon Blanc. I still make a lot of Cabernet, but the one variety that I've now really sort of switched a big set of focus to is the production of Pinot Noir and so for this brand that I do that's called Breed Couleur that's in Windsor B-R-I-C-O-L-E-U-R vineyards we have 60 acres of vineyard in, in uh, Sonoma County a couple different appellations we grow a lot of Pinot Noir so today was actually one of the most fun things to do so we make Uh, three different Pinot Noirs but one of them is a special selection and then we make a Russian River Pinot Noir and years ago I remember tasting with the owner and my assistant winemaker Tom Pearson I said you know one of the things that we do with Pinot Noir is we don't rack the barrels so that barrel is a new barrel, new French oak. That one's two years old. This one, dun, 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 and barrels, and then all these various clones of Pinot Noir, which are very different. And we're tasting one day, probably 2018. I said, "Why don't you do special selection?" And so then I told them the story of special selection. And so the special selection comes from when I was a kid at Inglenook. We would go over after work and and talk to Louis Martini. Come on, kids, you know, come in and taste, a couple little glasses of wine. He'd take us down below the, the the production floor, and they'd have these big concrete bins full of bottles laying on their side with corks on it, and there'd be a chalkboard, and it would write, you know, what the particular wine was. And he said, you know, one of the things that's that he enjoyed making was, two different wines that were more special. One was private reserve, so they make a Cabernet every year, and then they did private reserve just about 100% every year. So it was wine was a little bit bigger, and when you do all these various lots blending, you put a little bit more texture and mass in the wine, whatever went, was part of the blend. And then when we do something that's really special, we call it special selection. And we don't do it very often. For some reason, there'll be a particular wine that we've done that we call Special Selection. And Mark Hansen and Brieger said, that sounds great. Let's do that with the Pinot Noir. And I said, we're absolutely at the point that we're able to do this. So when we do Special Selection, we have, today we had all of the 2021 barrels, like 60 barrels of Pinot Noir on the floor. And we've already tasted through every barrel probably five times, me and assistant winemaker and one or two other people, wow, that one's really good. Uh, that's good. That's good. Oh, that one, you know. And same clone, could be the same cooper, the barrel could be the same age, but it's just, there's just something different. And it was, it. I stopped the group today. There was three of us who were tasting. I said, you know, this is one of the greatest things in the wine business that I enjoy right now is this process of selecting the barrels, that we're going to bottle those barrels, there's 13 of them that we kept to the side, that will be 310 cases of wine, that we'll bottle in February. The rest of the barrels are all really good Pinot Noir, but they're just not, you know, have quite the same amount of, of elegance, and that gets bottled next week.
0: You've got a fun gig. <laughs> yeah. no, it's great. What you do is fascinating to me, and I hope our listeners, because it's you've got such a, a foot in the history of Napa Valley, as well as being able to look to the future, With which, which is what winemakers do anyway. They look to the past, they look to the present, they look to the future. And, and the seeds I've planted. Yeah. And
1: not, I, I'm not doing this. No. It's like Amador County. I just I brought what was sort of like the current technology at the time which was nothing like what it is now and built an all new winery and planted, you know, a lot more grapes in the area and it just brought so many people in to do, you know, looking over the fence and tasting the wine and you know we all spoke the same language, right, you know, right. wine. Yeah. And vineyards. Yeah.
0: Most importantly today, for our listeners who'd like to learn a little bit more about you, Carry Gott, and your business, what is your website? Uh C-A-R-Y-G-O-T-T C-A-R-Y-G-O-T-T.com. Great. Easy to find. Carrie, thanks very much for spending the time today. Glad to do it. Learn more by visiting com. Listening to the longest running wine podcast online. Subscribe to the podcast at lifebetweenthevines.com or sign up to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Life Between the Vines comes to you from Fifth Floor Recording Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Produced and edited by Ray fister our host is Kay Pascoff. Our web geek is Dan Geishan. Original music by Ray fister Copyright 2023.